Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. We're not merely mid-book or mid-chapter as we start tonight. Um, we're actually mid-section. Where we are at in the book of Leviticus is a section that falls between two statements about the same thing. This is a common tool in the Bible, in the way that the Bible is written. It's called an inclusio. The way I always think of it is it's like a visible parenthesis mark with an opening parenthesis and a closing parenthesis. Um, it's like coming around to the beginning again to tie it up and cleanly keep the section all together. And so this section actually picks up back in chapter 10 with the death of Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu are the sons of Aaron the high priest, um, and they recklessly offer unauthorized fire, is what it says in my Bible, and lose their lives in the tabernacle. And it's worth remembering that this is on the inaugural day of the tabernacle's use. It's just gotten rolled out. It's just ramped up. You know, there's a, there's a high point in Israel's history. The tabernacle is here. God is dwelling with his people and then death. Okay. Um, we'll see when we get to the Day of Atonement in chapter 16 that it picks up in the same place. In fact, all of the instructions we read last week, 12, 13, 14, and what we'll read tonight, 14, 15, uh, and 16, are all given on the day of the death of Nadab and Abihu. So notice the close of this inclusio in chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Everything between chapter 10 and here is spoken directly to Aaron, and it focuses on the categories of clean and unclean. And it's very clear by, by um, putting these structure markers at both ends, the author wants us to see a correlation between the deaths of these two men and the clean and unclean laws. In fact, there's a book, and it's a big one. It's not for the faint at heart. In fact, I would say you probably need to be a level two student of the Bible before you crack this thing open. I found that I was grateful I read it 10 years into my Christian walk and not year one. However, there's a great book by a a scholar by the name of Sailhammer called The Meaning of the Pentateuch. And he has the most interesting premise. He believes that the goal of the author of the Pentateuch Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, his intention is to show the inability of the old covenant and the need for the new, which is a striking thing when you remember that the Pentateuch effectively is the heartbeat of what we call the old covenant. It's the basis of all of Israel's law, and he says that written into it intentionally is to show that that falls short of what's needed and to point forward to a future promise, and it's a fascinating read. But one of the things he points out is that basically um, the way that the law is given to Israel is progressive 
and it gets deeper and harder and worse, and it's always after instances of things going sideways. So, for example, Moses is up on the mountain, he's given the Ten Commandments, and he give, he's given an exposition of those Ten Commandments, but simultaneously Israel is shaping a golden calf to worship down at the bottom of the mount, and so once Israel was restored, we get another set of laws that doesn't just revisit, but build upon the ones that have already been given. And then we have the production of the tabernacle, and he points out that even that has a little bit of um, a little bit of a narrative around it. You may remember that when Moses goes back up on the mountain to atone for the sins of Israel and says, "Please, you have to go with us," he says, "No, I won't. You'll die." Right? And he says, no, there's no point in us going unless you'll come with us. And so the tabernacle is the answer to that need, a means for God to dwell with his people. So they finally get the tabernacle up and running, and Nadab and Abihu run in, you know, like headless chickens and do their own thing, and they die, and now we have clean and unclean. It's probably not that every one of these sins leads to more law, but clearly the author lays it out in this way, emphasizing these events and the follow-ups to give us a sense of the difficulty of a sinful people dwelling with a holy God. And so where we are at tonight is in a section that, as I said, focuses on the clean and unclean laws, and I don't know anything in the Old Testament that is more foreign to us today than this. Um, it includes things like what animals you can and cannot eat. It includes uh, what particular bodily discharges make you clean and unclean. It includes what happens if you have a rash or a skin disease. Um, and it focuses on all these things, and it uses basically three categories of thought. There is the holy, there is the clean, and there is the unclean. Now, there's a fourth category, but it's not helpful for the boxes, and that's the common, okay? And so things are either holy or they're common. They're either dedicated to God and only for his purposes, like the uh, instruments used in the tabernacle. You may have a spoon in the tabernacle that is holy, and you have a spoon in your house that is common, and they are not the same thing, and they're not to be used in the same way, right? When you profane something holy, it means you use it as if it were common. But there's nothing wrong with common, it's just not holy, it's not dedicated solely and completely to divine use. Okay? And so in common, everything is generally clean, unless it's unclean. So these are the three categories. But I want you to notice how consistent these categories are. So for example, look at the layout of the camp of Israel. In the middle we have the tabernacle, and it is what? Holy. Right? Then we have the camp, and the camp is clean, and then outside the camp is unclean. We'll see that tonight when we get to the Day of Atonement. When we look at food, we have animals that are holy, right? The sacrifices, the animals that can be used for sacrifices, particular birds, calves, cows, lambs. And then there are animals that aren't holy but are clean. In fact, all of the holy animals must be clean animals. They fall into that category, but they don't become holy until they're dedicated as a sacrifice. And then we have the unclean animals, right? When we look at people, we have the priesthood. The priesthood is holy, okay? Then there are the Israelites. They're merely common, but they're to maintain being clean. And then we have the Gentiles, which are unclean, okay? Do you see how consistent the categories are? 
On top of that, it's worth keeping in mind tonight as we open this up, as we look at this section of clean and unclean, it's helpful to notice how limited it is. Think of all the things it doesn't talk about. Like, I think it would be natural for us to assume that since it criticizes, or, or I shouldn't say criticizes, but since it delineates skin diseases as being something that makes you unclean, uh, and as we talked about, that's because it personifies death and corruption. Because it has nothing to do with the God who is life. Because it's a mark of the fact that our world is fa- fallen, and so it's kept at a distance. It's not sinful. It just can't be brought into the holy place, right? It's not clean, okay? But think of all of the other diseases that fall into that category, even some that would be diagnosed, you know, diagnosable. Nothing is said about the flu or the common cold although it would have the same significance, right? Even when it talks about what you eat and don't eat here, it focuses here on animals, what living animals you can eat and not eat. Uh, when it looks at, um, at the things that it covers, I mean, let's just make the whole list, and then we can think of all the things that aren't on the list, okay? So what animals can and can you not eat? Clean and unclean animals. Uh, what skin diseases defile you and make you unclean and which ones don't? What types of mold can impact uh, an object that you own, like a leather uh, pouch, for example, uh, or the house that you live in and which ones are clean? Um, and, uh, and then bodily discharges. Which things can happen to your body that put you in these categories of clean and unclean? That's it. And I think it's worth noticing that as we get started tonight because it points to the fact that the significance here is not in some sort of exhaustive category, but in teaching significant. These things are particularly chosen because they point to particular truths, okay? And so we've talked about this a little bit. What was the difference between the clean and unclean animals? For the most part, they either fit the normal paradigm of their environment or they didn't. And so most of the things that swim in the sea have scales and gills, so that's normal. Those things are clean. If it's missing scales, like an eel, uh, or, uh, or I think it's not gills, but fins, or if it's missing fins, if it's something that doesn't fit the paradigm, then it's unclean. It doesn't fit the order, okay? And so uh, we saw even at one point that one of the lists that's given of unclean animals is hard to actually organize because it has both mice and crocodiles on it. But the commonality it points to is that both of them have hand-like appendages that they walk on. So instead of like a cow that has four feet, a mouse or a crocodile walks on things that we associate with being hands. It doesn't fit the standard, okay? And so in the same way, when we look at uh, um, the giving of birth... Uh, The menstrual cycle, the blood that's involved there, bodily discharges, emissions of semen, all of these things categorically uh, have to do with life and death, okay? And so they focus in on these things, and their, their goal is to teach them about who God is, but they're effectively object lessons. In fact, if you go on to read the prophets, and I hope you do, You'll see that they pick up on the same language of clean and unclean, and they start to deepen its significance and not just talk about external realities, but internal ones. That's why David prays, create create in me a clean heart, O God. 
That's why Jesus' criticism of the religious elite of his day is that they're very thorough to wash the outside of the cup, but they leave the inside of the cup filthy, right? And when Jesus uh, accomplishes our salvation on the cross, he brings the cleansing that these things were merely pointing to, so we no longer need the pointers, okay? As Paul says in the book of Galatians, the Old Testament law was a tutor in preparation for Christ, It's as if we sat in school every day and it described what we need is as human beings, but when you find it, you no longer need to go to your lessons. You have it, right? And so it's worth keeping that in mind because we're going to pick up right in the midst, and I'm not going to take the time to walk any more than I have through those things. And so where are we at right now? We've been dealing with skin diseases, and the problem with skin diseases is they're corpse-like. In fact, we'll pick up here. Look at what it says in verse 44 or 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. In terms of dress there, do you know what uniform the leper is called to wear? He's called to wear the clothes of mourning. Okay. It's the same clothes you would wear to a funeral. Okay. And so it's the significance of these skin diseases is that they look like death. Later on uh, in the story of the Pentateuch, we'll get to an occasion where Miriam is struck with leprosy. And in Moses' prayer for Miriam, he'll pray, God, uh, take away this look of death from her. Okay. And so it emphasizes the same thing. Now, it moves on here to um, leprous diseases or diseases of corruption or, or mold or these types of things in garments uh, and other objects. Verse 47, when there's a case of a leprous disease in a garment, whether woolen or linen garment, in warp or woof of the linen or wool, or in a skin or anything made of skin, if the disease is greenish or reddish in the garment, or in the skin, or in the warp or woof, or in any article made of the skin, it is a case of leprous disease, and it shall be shown to the priest. Okay, and so once again, we see two things. One, there's a standard of diagnosis, and then it's presented to the priests. This section began with a a job description for the priest that included discerning between the clean and the unclean. Now, because we're dealing with not merely leprous diseases, which is the first half of this chapter, but also breakouts of, um, of mold and, and corruption in garments and things, it's worth remembering here, the priest is not a doctor. They're not coming to the priest so that he can provide a cure. In fact, that's one of the things that's strikingly missing from this. There is no magic uh, help for the ailments. The leper is to be isolated, and if he is healed, then the priest is the one who determines he has been healed and lets him back into the community, okay? In the same way, if they spot this on one of the objects they own, they're to bring it to a priest, verse 50, the priest shall examine the disease and shut up that which has the disease for seven days, okay? He quarantines the object. Then he shall examine the disease on the seventh day, If the disease has spread in the garment, in the warp or the woof or in the skin, whatever be the use of the skin, the disease is a persistent leprous disease and it's unclean. Okay, so if it's just a little bit of mold and after seven days it hasn't grown or or spread, uh, then that's fine. But if it's spreading, then it's qualified as unclean and then we see what happens next. Um, It says here, it's... A persistent leprous disease at the end of 52, it shall be burned in the fire. 
Okay, it's, it's given over. Verse 53, if the priest examines and if the disease has not spread in the garment, in the warp or the woof or in any article made of skin, then the priest shall command that they wash the thing uh, in which is the disease and he shall shut it up for another seven days. So they give it a good scrubbing and then another seven days of quarantine. Verse 55, and the priest shall examine the disease, the thing after it has been washed, and if the appearance of the diseased area has not changed, though the disease has not spread, it is unclean. Okay, so if it doesn't go away after 14 days, it's still unclean. You shall burn it in the fire, whether the rot is on the back or the front. But, verse 56, if the priest examines and the diseased area has faded after it's been washed, he shall tear it out of the garment or the skin of the warp or the woof. Then if it appears again in the garment, in the warp or the woof, or in any article made of skin, it is spreading. You shall burn it with fire, whatever has the disease. And so there's a third stage here. If it's faded, then it's removed from the garment, and the garment is quarantined one last time. And if it doesn't show up again then it's declared clean. If not, once again, it's a spreading disease and it's gotten rid of. Now, it's worth recognizing there's clearly a hygienic element to this. Okay? We live in Seattle, which means we know a little bit about black mold, and many of us are hyper-vigilant about dealing with black mold. Okay? We know that it's something that if undealt with, even if it's unseen, if it's growing on the other side of your wall, it can become literally a problem inside of you. Okay, and because we were worried that our kids were dealing with this, because we lived in an old house with windows twice my age, um, uh, where we would just get moisture every day, we would take a bucket and a squeegee and fill the bucket with water every day. That was our winter, every day. And then we'd open every window in the house and let it air out for a couple of hours um, because we were constantly fighting with mold. One of my kids was showing signs of allergies, so we started to look into what they do about black mold. Fascinatingly enough, they can't get it out of you. And so what they do is they develop your immunity to it by feeding you little bits of mold until your body can fight back. Okay? Clearly, the significance here is on the spreading. Right? Does everybody see that tonight? That's the concern. But it's not merely hygienic. These categories of clean and unclean are not like uh, how we would modern, uh, in modern hygiene think of clean and unclean. They're ritual. The only thing that's wrong with the unclean person is he cannot be around the holy things at risk of his own life, okay? The distance that's maintained here is not one of good people and bad people, and these uh, breakouts are not evidence of them being bad people. They're not seen merely as the judgment of God. This isn't distinguishing people into the righteous and the unrighteous. It's a recognition of the fact that in the middle of Israel's camp is a tabernacle where the living God dwells. Okay? Now, as a side note, let's recognize that things like black mold, things like these types of corruption, go back to what's wrong with the world because of the fall. And so they're not sinful, but there's a sense where the reality of it is directly rooted in sin. Remember that part of the curse that's given to Adam is the toil and the futility and the thorns and the thistles, and that probably includes things like mold and corruption. Basically, what we're talking about is decay. It's something that's working against the orientation and the purpose of God. Okay? And so it becomes an object lesson to help them think through these things. 
okay? Uh, verse 58, but the garment or the, uh, or the warp or woof or any article made of skin from which the disease departs when you have washed it shall then be washed a second time and it shall be clean. Now, let's pause right here before we move on. And, well, let's read verse 59 first. This is the law for a case of leprous disease in a garment of wool or linen, either in the warp or woof or in any article made of skin to determine whether it's clean or unclean. Now, why, why does it matter that an object is clean or unclean? Okay? It's not merely because you don't want to take a moldy bag into the tabernacle. It's because when you're exposed to an unclean object, it's contaminating. It makes you unclean. Okay? When you carry this bag through the marketplace, it makes those who interact with it, unbeknownst to them, unclean. Okay? It's the same contagion factor. Now, this is what I want you to think about. Let's just do a mental experiment. Okay? So here's the things on the list again. If you encounter a dead body or a dead animal, if you've eaten an unclean animal, for example, pork, if you've recently had your menstrual cycle within the last week, if you've had sex recently, or if you've had uh, an emission of semen, like a nocturnal emission or, or something like that, if you currently have some form of skin disease or have recently encountered corruption, you are in the category of unclean. Okay? If we were the tabernacle tonight, how many of us could stand here? Please don't raise your hand. But just mentally, I want you to recognize the significance that this creates in Israel's life. Every day, they're constantly sorting through these categories and recognizing the position they're in. So, for example, we'll notice that many of the unclean stations, especially the ones which are common to life, like encountering some mold uh, or, or your menstrual cycle or these types of things or having a baby, what's done after that is basically just a ritual washing. You should wash and you'll be cleansed. If it's an ongoing disease, if it's the birth of a child, if it's uh, a um, venereal disease, all of those things also require sacrifice. But the first level is just washing, okay? These rules were so extensively utilized in Israel that they were constantly adding to the supply of ritual baths that by the time, um, by the time of Jesus were all over Jerusalem, okay? There were communal baths. There were baths right by the temple before you went in. If you were wealthy, you had your own bath. And not just because it's great to have a tub, but because of this need for ritual cleanness. It was a constant and regular part of life. Okay? It's helpful for us to get the significance of that. So whereas chapter 13 focuses on the diagnosis of when are you unclean from a skin disease, when are you unclean uh, or is a, is a garment or a bag unclean, now it's what happens when it's over, how do you get integrated back into the community, chapter 14. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. Remember again, this doesn't present a way for these skin diseases to be healed, but if or when they are, it gives a way back into the community. And so there's a couple of steps here. First, he shall be brought to the priest, verse 3, and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. Okay? And so those with skin diseases have to move out of their houses have to move out of the camp of Israel and are living away outside the camp. So the priest comes to them because they hear, hey, I think I'm healed. I think the problem's gone away. And so he comes to do an inspection. 
the priest shall look. Then, if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him, who is to be cleansed, two live clean birds, and cedar wood, and scarlet yarn, and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. Okay, why over fresh water? Because as you kill the bird, as you break its neck, it's going to bleed into the water, okay? And so there's this pot full of water to catch the blood, okay? Uh, so earthen well over fresh water, verse 6, he shall take the live bird, remember two birds, now one of them's dead, and the other's alive, he'll take the live one, and what does he do with it? With the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop, and he'll take all four of those things and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And so this living bird is dipped into the water with the cedar wood, the hyssop, the red thread, the scarlet thread, uh, and remember the water has the blood of the dead bird, okay? Verse 7, and then he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. And so, like you're flicking a paintbrush, but this time it's a live bird covered in blood, right? They flick it onto the leper who is showing no signs of leprous disease. Uh, and he uh, then, halfway through verse 7, he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. Okay, so the last two steps is he says, I now declare you clean, and then he lets this living bird paintbrush go, and it flies away. So let's look at this before we move on, because we're not actually done yet. This is phase one, but it's only phase one. It has a lot of elements, and almost all of them are new, okay? Outside of the sacrificial system uh, that we've already read, in that system, we didn't hear any reference to cedar wood. Hyssop is something we know, because both when Israel was originally set apart at the base of Mount Sinai, and when the priests were sanctified as priests, it was hyssop that was used to sprinkle them with blood, okay? In fact, this becomes a significant image, which is why in Psalm 51, David prays, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, okay? But the cedar wood and the scarlet thread, which is not, uh, not made out of wool, but actually closer to like the byproduct of a silkworm, but a silkworm that actually produces a red thread. It's a, it's a very particular word here. Um, these things really only exist in this ritual. And that makes it relatively difficult to nail down the symbolism. But before we look at that, let's look at the other part, okay? What could it mean that we have two birds at the beginning, one of them is killed, and the other is set free, okay? The recognition here is the two possibilities of outcome with disease, death, and being healed, okay? It's a reminder for the one who's been healed the significance of what God has done. I don't know if you caught that implication here, uh, but the recognition here is not that the priest or some sort of health regimen or even isolation has healed this man, but God has brought healing. And so going through the ritual is the reminder of these two possible outcomes, Okay, and so he rejoices in the fact that like the bird that goes free, he's now been set free from this disease. Okay. But what do we do with the hyssop, with the cedar wood, uh, and with the scarlet yarn? It's relatively clear that the scarlet yarn has to be pointing to blood. 
okay? That its significance in the ritual has to do with that. As I said, hyssop is just a really tiny, uh, very bushy brush, and it's just used as a way to apply things. It's relatively common uh, in the Middle East. In fact, side note, it shows up at the crucifixion of Jesus, the same plant, okay? Uh, And then the cedar wood, you know, it has properties, like cedar is relatively sturdy, It's also one of the more fragrant woods. That's why we have cedar planks that we cook salmon on. It's because there's a a value to that fragrantly. And on top of that, they grow relatively tall. Okay, so for example, in the Midrash, they uh, they speculate that skin diseases like this are the consequence of pride. And that's actually not a bad suggestion biblically because a lot of people get struck with leprosy in the Bible and that's a primary thing that's going on, okay? So a prideful king goes... I can be a priest, and storms his way into the temple and struck with leprosy. Miriam takes a stand against Moses. I'm just as good as you as Moses, and to humble her and remind her, right? So this is where they're drawing this principle from. And so they say the cedar represents us standing tall in pride. Well, what about the hyssop? The hyssop is a tiny little plant, and so that's the solution, which is humility. Really, I don't know. This isn't a wood that shows up enough in the Bible in metaphorical ways. Here, it may have symbolic significance, but it's not metaphorical. When it says take cedar wood here, it means wood of the cedar, right? It's not a metaphor here. There aren't enough metaphorical uses in the Bible to really get a feel for this. But that doesn't take away from the clear pieces of this imagery, okay? There's uh, the death of one bird. There's the reality of the other one set free. There's the presence of water and blood, which have to do with cleansing consistently in the Old Testament. All of those things are present. Now, it is intriguing to me the correlation we can draw when we do get to Jesus. But there's some differences. Jesus doesn't die with a scarlet thread, but bleeding himself. He doesn't die in the presence of smooth cedar planks, but on the rough wood of a cross, right? The hyssop is not something that purges Jesus. It's what holds the sponge full of vinegar, right, that's given to him on the cross. It's part of his shame. But there are significant things there. But this isn't over, okay? And so he sprinkles him seven times. He pronounces him clean. He lets the living bird go, verse 8. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair, and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp. But he has to live outside his tent seven days, in the camp, but not his house, verse 9. And on the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair. He shall wash his clothes, and bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. And on the eighth day, he shall take two male lambs without blemish, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish, and a grain offering of three-tenths of an aphaph of fine flour mixed with oil, and one log of oil. Side note, if you were curious, a log is, we're pretty sure, close to a cup. It's the smallest measurement of a liquid in the Bible, okay? So just, it, to me, a log sounds big. It's not big. It's a cup of oil. Uh, one log of oil, and wave them as a wave offering before the Lord, Verse 13, he shall kill the lamb in the place where they kill the sin offering and the burnt offering in the place of the sanctuary. Okay, so notice the movement here. He starts outside the camp, unclean. He moves into the camp, 
clean, and then he offers sacrifices in the holy place as clean, but that part is needed. He, doesn't, he can't just settle into life. He has to go all the way in before he can even move back into his home. We'll see the significance of this in a second. Okay. So he kills the sin offering and the burnt offering in the place of the sanctuary. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It is most holy. So he offers two offerings here. A burnt offering and a sin or a guilt offering. Okay. And what's the significance of those two? Remember, looking all the way back to Leviticus chapter 1, the burnt offering is an offering of dedication. As the animal is wholly consumed on the altar and ascends in the smoke, so we're presenting ourselves fully or wholly to God. What about the sin offering? This isn't merely a recognition that the disease may be a consequence of sin, although it's worth noting how often Jesus heals someone and then says, go and sin no more. Okay? So clearly there can be a correlation between these two things. Like Nadab and Abihu, there are consequences. There is such a thing as judgment. Like um, like the lepers that we mentioned, like Miriam, there is this correlation. But the offering here is not about that. It's a sin offering because he's been out of the habit of offering offerings, right? It's a recognition that while he's been away, that he hasn't lived up to God's standards, and so he enters in the way that all Jews enter in with a sin offering, okay? Verse 14, the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, notice this, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Okay, now this is really fascinating. There is one other place where we find this particular ceremony, and it is in the, uh, the consecrating of the high priest. It's the only other place where we see the blood applied to the person so specifically. People being sprinkled with blood is a common thing. Being applied to the right lobe of the ear, to the thumb, and to the right toe um, is, is novel, and it occurs only in these two places. Most authors, when they look at this whole thing in total, not just the significance of that, but also the bathing and shaving and these types of things, the image that it c- comes to mind is basically the birth of Israel. And so it's a re-entrance to the covenant through the same door they entered through first time. It's just a collapsing. And so what this is all about is being restored to the covenant community of Israel. And so that's signified here through water and through blood. And the blood is applied just as it was to the high priest. Verse 15, the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand and dip his right finger in the oil that's in his left hand and sprinkle some of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. Some of the oil that remains in his hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed on the thumb of his right hand and on his big toe of his right foot on top of the blood of the guilt offering. Okay. And so what do we see here after the application of blood is then the application of oil. So whereas blood speaks of cleansing, for out, without um, blood there is no forgiveness of sin, uh, the oil speaks of consecration. Remember here that one of the things that this man, who's recovered from a leprous disease, and the high priest have in common is that God's called them both to be priests. Not in the same way, But God has made Israel a kingdom of priests. And so there's a sense where most Israelites are merely common and not holy. But there's another sense where God has said to them, what? Be holy as I am holy. Right? And so there's these similarities in what's going on here. And it points to his entrance back into God's 
holy people and not merely um, back into the state of being clean. Verse 18, the rest of the oil that's in the priest's hand, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed. Then the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for him who is cleansed from his uncleanness, and afterwards he shall kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be clean. Okay? And so let's just walk through the process one more time. He thinks that he no longer has the disease. The priest comes out of the city and inspects him. And if that's the case, he has his family members gather up the things needed for this first sacrifice, which involves two birds, a red thread, uh, cedar wood, and some hyssop. They go through that, and then he moves into the city. He shaves and bathes and stays outside his house for one week. And on the eighth day, he shaves and bathes again and goes all the way to the tabernacle and offers a burnt offering and a guilt offering. And the blood and the oil is applied, and then he is restored back to Israel. Now, one of the reasons why this process is significant, because as I think you can imagine, the danger of clean and unclean and the way that it would separate you from the normal privileges of Israel, access to the tabernacle, being able to offer your sacrifices, the fellowship offering, um, there needs to be a visible, an outward manifestation of cleansing so that everybody knows you're on the up and up. This is what plays out in Jesus' ministry when the woman who has some sort of flow of blood, an issue of blood that's been going on for 12 years, sneaks a touch of his garment, right? He stops and he goes, wait a minute, someone touched me. I felt the power go out from me. And he makes such a big deal about it, about it, his disciples are confused and they go, Jesus, we're in a really crowded street. Everybody is touching everybody. He says, no, I felt the power go out from me. And so he ate, he... Uh, hones in and makes this woman publicly raise her hand and say it was me here's what's going on is that just because Jesus wants the credit no is it just because he needs to remind the man who he's traveling with that his daughter who's 12 years old matching the 12 year flow of blood of this woman is going to be okay even though they haven't arrived yet and they're about to hear he's dead clearly that's part of it but more significantly than that is the reality that this woman has been cut off in fact this type of a scenario she shouldn't have even been around. She shouldn't have even been here. She's quietly trying to get what she needs, but she needs the visible public recognition of her clean status to be initiated back into the life of Israel. We see Jesus do the same thing with lepers. On multiple occasions, he heals lepers, and on many of those occasions, he tells them specifically, go and show yourself to the priest. Why? Because it's not just about a skin disease. It's about being isolated from the community. It's about being able to re-engage with your family. It's about being let back into the tabernacle and the worship. And so he sends them to the priests so that the priests can publicly, on the record, declare them clean and they can be initiated back into the community. Now this brings up another point. When we talk about the kosher laws of clean and unclean foods and exposure, exposure to animals, the emphasis is on if you can enter the tabernacle. But with these infectious diseases, the emphasis is on if you can be a part of the community of Israel, right? Enter the tabernacle or even enter the camp. The difference is here. And the significance in this is the fact that um, clean and unclean, contagious and uncontagious, uh, all of it pointing to the way sin works in our life, works in two different levels. Sin separates us from God and it also separates us from other people. 
In the New Testament, Paul lays out instructions for what we today call church discipline. He recognizes that there are behaviors that are incongruent with the Christian life and that they can't just coexist. And so he calls, if the person will not turn away from their sin, and there's a progression here, but if it's adamant and they draw a line in the sand and after multiple people have come to them and said, turn away from this, then they're to be set outside the church. Okay? The reason... The reason is because their sin is already bearing consequence in their interaction with other people in the church and in their own life. But they are not visible because of the fringe benefits of being part of a church, right? It's like, no, I'm part of the community. I'm loved by God. I praise Jesus. Jesus is clearly fine with this. It takes the invisible realities of sin and makes it visible so that they feel the weight of the consequences of their own sin kind of like somehow, sometimes, how we punish young children, right? Because we want them to understand that they are isolating themselves from others by their behaviors, so we physically isolate them so they can feel that, right? There's a similarity there. In the Old Testament, these clean and unclean categories are a constant reminder of this fact, that our lives are always at risk in relationship with God and in relationship with other, with sin, but also here is laid out a path to cleansing, a path of restoration. And that's significant as well. This is not excommunication, right? They don't kick lepers out of the camp and say, never come back. There's a way back into the community, and that's significant. So that's the usual status quo. But what if, what if the diseased person can't afford everything that's involved in that? right? There's two birds, there's two, uh, two lambs, there's all these things going on, but verse 21, if he's poor and cannot, cannot afford so much, then he shall take one male lamb for a guilt offering to be waived to make atonement for him, and a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, and a log of oil, and also two turtle doves or two pigeons, whichever he can afford, the one shall be a sin offering and another a burnt offering. Now that's probably of significance, Because imagine this disease has gone on for years. We, even in our modern society, know that extended illness can deplete resources, right? And so there's a recognition that maybe he may not even have enough to get back into society. And so that's handled, that's taken care of, okay? Uh, verse 23, and on the eighth day he'll bring them for his cleansing to the priest the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and the priest shall take the lamb of the guilt offering and the log of oil. The priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. He shall kill the lamb of the guilt offering, and the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who's to be cleansed. In other words, the same ceremony we read last time. On the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot, verse 26, the priest shall pour some of the oil into the palm of his left hand, sprinkle it with his right finger, some of the oil that's in his left hand seven times before the Lord. And the priest shall put some of the oil that's on his hand on the lobe of the right ear who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot in the place where the blood of the guilt offering was put. And so outside of the fact that these uh, sacrifices are cheaper, the, the ceremony is the same. There's no poor person special, 
right? Where it's like, well, you're partially in, but not really, right? It's all the significance is there, um, but a way is made for the poor. Verse 29, arrest the oil that's in the priest's hand. He shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed to make atonement for him before the Lord. And she will offer the turtle doves or pigeons, whichever he can afford, one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering, along with a grain offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for him who is to be cleansed. This is the law for him in whom a case of leprous disease who cannot afford the offering for his cleansing. Okay? Now, I talk all the time about structure. Let me just point out one more thing. Originally, it was leprous diseases and then, uh, uh, and then garments, and then it was the cleansing of leprous diseases, and now we're going to talk about buildings. And so in the center is the cleansing. That's intentional. It, it draws attention. But here, what about if there's an outbreak of mold in your house? Verse 33, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession. Now pause. Did you notice what's striking about that verse? And I put a case of leprous disease in your houses. Okay. That was a mind-blowing comment to the Jews. It's a mind-blowing comment to commentators today. We wonder what the significance of it is. But it's worth recognizing that behind all of these realities, both disease and, and uh, the corruption like mold, which I keep trying to think of a better word for and I just can't find, but it's there. I'll get it sooner or later. Um, all of this happens in the confines of the world that God designed. Okay? And although there's a sense where it's a world gone wild and a creation gone wild, it's not outside of the confines of who God is and what he's doing. Right? But the recognition uh, here is just simply made that what's happening here, uh, at the very least we can say this, is not something that catches God off guard. It's not something that surprises him. It's not some alternate force that God is worried about. Okay? Can you imagine if we were reading this text for the first time, we didn't know anything else about the God of the Bible, wouldn't there be this sense that all of these unclean things were actually a threat to God? And so he's trying to keep the contaminants from him, Right? This is one of the places of many where that's clearly not the case. The other of many are things like, lest you die. It's no threat to God. It's a threat to your relationship with God because he is so holy, because it is incongruent with who God is. Okay? And so what happens if they spot an outbreak like this in a house? Verse 35, he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, there seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. The priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all that's in the house be declared unclean. Okay? So the first thing that they do is they act quickly. They remove all the people and all of the things they own from the house so that they're not contaminated. Just up front, just in case he declares it unclean, then everything would have to be dealt with. Um, verse uh, 36, halfway through. And afterward, the priest shall go in and see the house, and he shall examine the disease. And if the disease is in the walls of the house with greenish or reddish spots, and if it appears to be deeper than the surface, okay, if it feels like it's in the porous of the stones itself, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house seven days. Like we saw with the lepers, like we saw with the garments, here the first approach is just quarantine for seven days. 
Verse 39, the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look. If the disease has spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall command them they take out the stones in which the disease is diseased and throw them into an unclean place outside of the city. Okay, so phase two, if it looks like it's spreading, they cut the affected stones right through the plaster out of the building and remove them entirely. Okay. Then, verse 41, he shall have the inside of the house scraped all around, and all the plaster that they scrape off, they shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. They take off the whole outer surface of the wall uh, on every wall inside the house. Verse 42, then they shall take the other stones and put them in the place of those stones, and he shall take the other plaster and plaster the house. Okay, now once again, I want you to notice that what the priest doesn't do is an exorcism, right? What he doesn't do is bring healing. It's just trying to determine clean or unclean, okay? And so the first process is see if it grows, and then the second process is remove the places where it appears, and then strip everything down, replace those stones, and then, verse 43, if the disease breaks out again in the house, after he's taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go and look, and if the disease has spread in the house, it's a persistent leprous disease, the same label for bodily disease, for garment disease in the house. It is unclean. They'll break down the house, its stones, its timber, and all the plaster of the house, and he shall carry them out of the city to an unclean place. Once again, there's a clear hygienic principle in this. If they can't beat it, then they need to completely remove it unless it were to spread to their neighbor's house and break out across the city. But the purpose of this is not merely hygienic. It has to do with this ritual, clean and unclean. Okay, verse 46. Moreover, whoever enters the house while it's shut up shall be unclean until evening, and whoever sleeps in the house shall wash his clothes, and whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes. Okay? And so the, the uncleanness that comes with this is not some sort of permanent stigma, but just till evening, and then they wash, and they're fine. But they're being exposed to something unclean. They're made unclean, and it has to go through the cleansing process. Verse 48. But if the priest comes and looks and the disease has not spread in the house after the house was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean for the disease is healed. And for the cleansing of the house, he shall take two small birds with cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop and shall kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water and shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet yarn along with the live bird and dip them in the blood of the bird that was killed in the fresh water and sprinkle the house seven times. As we saw for the leper so also the house is cleaned in the exact same ritual. But there is a difference. As we'll see in the, in the next few verses, there is no guilt offering. There is no burn offering because a house is not a person, right? And so they go through the act of cleansing here, the same one for the lepers, but just that act of cleansing, not the restoration of the person because the people aren't unclean, just the building Verse 52, thus he shall cleanse the house with the blood of the bird and with the fresh water and with the live bird and with the cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn. And he shall let the live bird go out of the city into the open country and he'll make atonement for the house and it shall be clean. This is the law for any case of leprous disease, for an itch, for a leprous garment in a house or for a swelling or an eruption or a spot to show when it's unclean and when it's clean. This is the law for a leprous disease. Okay, and so it reviews everything and kind of summarizes here. Um, but recognize, once again, the significance of all these things. 
the recognition um, here that I think is worth pointing out that we need to make tonight is that these categories permeate every aspect, every layer of your life. Okay? And that seems strange to us. It seems strange that God would care about the mold under our kitchen counter or what we had for lunch. But our modern way of dealing with this is this, this, uh, this two-category system of sacred and secular. So we have sacred jobs and secular jobs. We have missionaries and we have garbage men. Right? We have sacred and secular places. We have bars and we have church buildings. We have sacred and secular times. We have times that are devoted to God and times where I'm just doing my hobby. For Israel, though, one of the reasons why this is better is because it shows that God's and your relationship with God permeates every layer of your life. And there's a benefit to that. There's a recognition to that. I I brought this up this morning, and I'll bring it up again. There was a Latin phrase that the church used to use. uh, It's this, in corum Deo, before the face of God. It was a recognition of the fact that as we live our lives, it's as if we are always in the presence of God. And it's a purifying reminder of this sacred and secular divide. That there's things in my life God cares about and things that he doesn't care about. There's things that I do to engage directly with God. And then there's the normal everyday stuff that God doesn't care anything about. But for the Jews, there was a constant reminder that because God dwelled in the tabernacle, he was also present with the people. And that made all the difference in every aspect of their life. When he says later in the book of Leviticus, be holy for I am holy, there's not an area of their life that that doesn't touch. And so symbolically and significantly for us, we should respond and recognize that reminder that what God wants to do in us is not about Sundays. It's not about the things that you dedicate in your life for God. It runs through the warp and woof of your very life. Okay. Let's move on to chapter 15. This whole chapter deals with bodily discharges, and once again, it's organized. And so up front, we have um, men with abnormal discharges, men with normal discharges, women with normal discharges, women with abnormal discharges, A, B, B, A. It moves in, and then it moves back out. Significantly, just a side note, in all of the ancient Middle East literature that we know of, Uh, women who were menstruating were considered unclean. It didn't always mean the same thing in different societies, but that's a constant. But what's striking about chapter 15 of Leviticus is how equal it is with both men and women, which was relatively unique. And that's worth pointing out because there's been this tendency to recognize rightly a double standard in the treatment of men and women in not just ritualistic things, but also moralistic things. It is so weird to read about how the Romans thought about virtue. They had two ethics, an ethics for men and an ethics for women, and you cannot read it without recognizing, from our perspective, a severe double standard. So, for example, women were expected to be virgins when they married, expected to maintain faithfulness to their wives or to their husbands, and originally they were also aspiring to be univera, A woman of one man, meaning that if their husband passed away, they didn't remarry. That was the ideal. Men, however, were told, look, there's no way you're going to make it till marriage. Have fun while you're young. They had consorts on the side during marriage, and they were swift to remarry afterwards. These two standards were presented. 
The problem is we've recognized this as moderns and our response to it has been to basically lower the standard to the behavior of men. Pretty consistently, this is how we go. We go, look, it's a double standard. You should let women be free to do these things. Even sometimes the way that we talk about abortion falls into this camp. Where it's men have been irresponsible with the pregnancies they cause forever, women should have say-so in this too. They shouldn't be left with the consequences of men. Which I think is a totally valid statement. But it's swinging in the wrong direction. And the reason I say that is not just my personal opinion, it's because when the Bible does address these things, and they do, it's not a decreasing, a loosening of the double standard of woman, it's a reminder of the equal standard of both. I mentioned that principle of univera. This is one of my fresh discoveries in this big study that I'm doing on gender and sexuality. When Jesus is, or excuse me, when Paul is talking to Timothy and telling him about what type of people are qualified to be pastors, he says, let them be a husband of one wife. Do you know what he says literally in the Greek there? Let them be a one-woman man. He takes the Roman double standard and he equalizes the playing field, not by loosening it, but reminding it of the fact that morals are equal opportunity. Okay? There's a consistency to that. When Jesus talks about divorce, in the Gospel of Mark, he says something that to the Jewish mind makes no sense whatsoever. He says that if you, uh, if you remarry after adult, uh, let's see, I've got to get the order of this right or it's not going to make any sense. Okay, I'm just going to have to explain because I can't remember the exact way this lays out. But the offense in the ways that some Jews handle it in Jesus' day was that adultery was really only an offense against the man because the wife was his property. But when Jesus talks about it, he makes explicit the offense against the woman, unlike any Jewish teacher of his time. Paul picks up on that and he says, despite the fact that in Israel, only a man could initiate divorce. In the Romans, it could go either way. And Paul naturally points to Jesus and says, as Jesus said, and then talks about divorce in both directions. Okay? And this is Paul who's always, always, always being criticized as being a sexist, but he is profoundly countercultural if you just stop and listen. I'll give you one more place where this is true. A lot of us get uncomfortable with the marriage passage in Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and wives be subject or be submissive to your husbands. We read that and it makes us uncomfortable because it seems to codify this reality of patriarchy. But here's something that Paul does that's significant. Okay, first off, you're not going to get away from the fact that he says wives be subject to husbands. It, this isn't some sort of mutual submission. There's just no way to do it. But when he says husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church, he speaks as the husbands being a head. Okay, that's the metaphor he uses. This relationship between head and body. Here's why that's significant. The Romans used this idea of head and body all the time. This is the way that they used it. Caesar is the head of the nation, so the body should sacrifice for the head. Because if, if Caesar dies, if Caesar's threatened, then we all disappear. Paul turns it around and he says, no, the head sacrifices for the body. In Roman thinking, the head was the object of love and veneration of the body. And Paul says, no, the head initiates in love and loves the body. Once again, he is intentionally taking the paradigm of his day and flipping it around. Why does he do that? Because Jesus does that. 
He says, you know how the Gentiles lord authority over one another, but not so with you. He who is to be the greatest will be the servant of all. And so we see two things tonight consistently, even as we'll see here in chapter 15. There is not a removal of the categories. There is not a deletion of gender. There is clearly an order, but there is an overturning of these things. For me, I would go all the way back to Genesis 3, and part of the bad consequence of what happens in the fall is that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That is not a good thing. That's an awful thing. It's a recognition of the fact that what's gone wrong with man, as, as in the gender, not just mankind, is this ability to abuse their position. Okay? The Bible recognizes that. It combats that. It calls for a response to that. But there's a major difference between a husband who feels lovingly responsible and is recognized as accountable. Before that statement, there's sin in the garden, Eve is deceived, gives Adam the fruit, and who does God come looking for? Adam. Adam, where are you? Why? Because God gave the command to Adam. Anyways, this, more to come this fall. But we can read this and we go, this is weird because, because it has things involving uh, menstrual cycles. But what's really striking when you read it in lieu of the other ancient doc- documents is how consistently equal it is in the way that it handles things. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge, excuse me, his discharge is unclean. And the law of his uncleanness for a discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by the discharge, it is his uncleanness. Now it says at the beginning of this, a discharge of his body, that's almost guaranteed to be a euphemism. Not any discharge, but a genital discharge. That's what's being referred to here. These ones have to do with diseases. Like a perfect example of this would be gonorrhea, okay? Um, It continues on and it says, verse 4, every bed on which the one which the discharge lies shall be unclean and everything on which he sits shall be unclean and anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Why does it care so much here about genital discharges? It has to do once again with that paradigm of life and death, okay? Both blood and semen, as well as the ability to procreate, all of those things have to do with life. And so when uh, blood is leaving your body, like in menstruation, it's a reminder of the reality of death. Okay? It's also a reminder of the curse, of the, the pain that comes with labor, of all of these things. Uh, same with these discharges. Um, they speak of death. And so the issue here is not just you know, where have you been that you picked up this, you know, genitalia discharge? It's not just some sort of distance like that. Notice the interactions with them are relatively minor on the clean-unclean scale. Unclean till evening, wash yourself, and you can go back to the tabernacle. As soon as the discharge is over, we'll see there's a way for him. But the importance of it has to do with this incongruence with the God who is life, okay? 
Verse 10, whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean to the evening. Anyone with whom the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean till the evening. And an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed with water. Why is earthenware broken? And once again, because it's porous, okay? And so it can't be cleaned in the same way. Verse 13, and when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes, okay? So when he's healed, when he's no longer dealing with this, he has a week separation, just like we've seen, a bath, and he's restored. Verse 14, on the eighth day, he'll take two turtle doves or two pigeons, come before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and give them to the priest, and the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burn offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. Now, once again, the emphasis here of having a sin offering is probably not merely that this could have been caused by sin, but because he's been distant from his usual sacrifices, and you always begin with a sin offering. Okay? But it doesn't stop there. It's also the burnt offering. So back into this place of consecration. What about normal and natural um, discharges? Verse 16, if a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until evening. Okay, and so... Any emission of semen, uh, any sexual activity renders you unclean. Not because sex is bad, but because it has to do with, um, with semen leaving the body. Okay. Now as a side note, once again, I know these things are relatively foreign to us. But Eastern religions make a direct correlation for men how much semen they lose and how long they will live. And so many monks try and maintain a low level of emitted semen to extend their life, okay? It's the virility, right, is leaving the body. The significance is somewhat the same, even if the understanding is different. And so this is the men for both abnormal and normal discharges. Remember, when we read here normal discharges, as we'll see with the woman with the menstrual cycle, these are unavoidable normal and natural parts of life. The issue here, once again, is not, are you a good person or a bad person? It's during this time, can you go into the holy place? Can you interact with the holy things like a sacrifice? Verse 19, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is bud, uh, blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. Everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything on which she sits shall be unclean, and whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening, just like we saw with the man. Verse 22, whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. Whether it's the bed or anything on which she sits and she touches, it shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Okay. And so it's consistent here. In fact, the only one that doesn't make the list here is if she spits on someone. And I'm just going to assume that's because that's just not something she would do. 
right? Uh, but other than that, the list is exactly the same. For men or women, it's the same. The uncleanness works the same. Verse 25, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of her discharges, she'll continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. And so notice here, once again, the issue is the bleeding itself. Okay, that's where the uncleanness comes from. Because bleeding is associated with death. The life is in the blood. The loss of the life points to death. Verse 26. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of impurity. Everything on which she sits sits, shall be unclean in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be unclean till evening. But... If she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, just like the man, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she'll take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting, just like the man, and the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burn offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord of an unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from the uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that's in their midst." So once again, the significance there has to do with being in association with the tabernacle. Verse 32, this is the law for him who has a discharge, him who has an omission of semen, becoming unclean thereby, also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is for anyone male or female who has a discharge, and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. And so we get a summary statement at the end. Now there is one other thing that's worth mentioning here. The clean laws, one of the things that they do consistently is keep Israel separate from the nations. So, for example, what you're allowed to eat changes who you eat with. And so their diet is distinct from the other people of Israel, and so there's a separation there. It's a natural separation. In the same way, one of the things that's unique about Israel's religion is that there is no magical significance to semen Uh, and to the process of birth, which we call sex, to semen and sex, to those two things, okay? Many of the religions around Israel used sex as a tool of worship, and in their language, that means as a way of manipulating the gods, okay? There were fertility rites, and so there's probably significance in the fact that all of these things are kept at a distance from the tabernacle as a constant reminder that that's not what this is, that this is something different, that Israel's worship hasn't been sexualized in this way. But on the other hand, we have to keep in mind the fact that the, um, that the having of children is something that the Bible codifies as being not only the creation of God, but the calling of God for human beings to be fruitful and multiply, that the birth of children is a blessing that he gives. And so these things are not bad in and of themselves, But because of their representation, because they point to the reality of death, because they remind us of the curse, um, because they're uh, things like bleeding, uh, they fall into this category of unclean and they have to wait until, um, until they're cleansed before they can engage. Now, I would love to do the Day of Atonement tonight so we could end on a higher note, but I don't want to speed through that. I want to take my time. And so this is where we'll finish. I'll finish by setting up chapter 16. Chapter 16 is at the dead center of the book of Leviticus. Everything that comes before it 
has to do with these things. It has to do with the priesthood and what goes on at the tabernacle, and as we just saw, who can enter the tabernacle. Day of Atonement, and then the rest of the book focuses on how Israel is supposed to live in their common life. Okay? So it sits right as the hinge at the middle of the book. It's also the capstone for this issue of uncleanness, because although the Day of Atonement is also about the forgiving of sins, it's simultaneously about the purifying of the tabernacle, the dealing with uncleanness. Okay? There's a recognition that everything Israel does in their sacrifices and in the, the ritual clean ceremonies isn't actually taking care of everything. And so the Day of Atonement deals with all of it. Not only that, but the Day of Atonement is significant um, because in its operation... It basically reverses the story of the fall. Okay? So as we saw, the tabernacle lays out as a picture of the earth as it's made, and the Holy of Holies is the Garden of Eden. And so just like the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of it, is guarded by cherubim, so also the curtain that divides the holy place from the Holy of Holies is painted with cherubim. Just as there's the tree in the garden uh, uh, the tree in the garden, um, the tree of life, so also in the tabernacle there is this lamp that is shaped like a tree, right? There's these things that point to this. Um, every year during the Day of Atonement, the exile from the Garden of Eden is reversed as the Holy of Holies is penetrated by the priest as he goes back into the presence of God. Okay. Now there's a lot more to it than that. But even in the way the directions play out, and I'll just, I'll just end here. He's going to take two goats, one of them he's going to kill, and that blood is going to go all the way into the Holy of Holies. Side note, west. They always point the tabernacle in the same direction. So as he moves from where he's killed the animal at the gate to the Holy of Holies, he moves west. The other goat... He lays his hands on, both hands in fact, confesses all the sins of Israel, and then that goat is taken east, out of the tabernacle, out of the camp, into the unclean place, the wilderness, and is released never to return. Okay? And so there's this dual significance of blood going west and this animal where these, you know, with the imputing of sin going east. No doubt this is the significance of when the prophet later says that God has separated our sin like the east from the west. But also, if you go back and read the book of Genesis, what is mankind constantly doing after they're out of the garden? Going east. Okay. And so he's set east outside of the garden and then they move east. You can just trace it through the book. You can underline it. There's this, so the Tower of Babel is even further east. There's this movement. The tabernacle is a constant picture of that story in reverse. Okay. But we'll save the significance of that and the details for next week. Let's close with prayer. God, Israel was deeply acquainted with the reality of your holiness, with the fallen uh, nature of the world that we live in, and what's wrong with the environment. And also we're given these pictures of what you were going to do to fix it. And not just merely help us to understand what's clean and unclean and cleanse us on the outside, but actually cleanse us so deeply on the inside that these practices were no longer significant. That you make us holy from the inside out.
And so we praise you for uh, the value of what you've done in Jesus, but we also recognize that we have a tendency, because that's so great, because it's so significant, we have a tendency to miss the lessons that we see here in Leviticus of how holy you truly are. We can downplay the significance of your sacrifice because we don't understand the distance and the depth of the difficulty that we found ourselves in. And so I pray that tonight, as we reflect on what we've learned and as we continue through the book of Leviticus, you would help us to plumb the depths of the distance between us and you that you bridged, not one that you call us to bridge through ceremony and sacrifice, but one that you bridged by becoming a man and dying in our place and profoundly washing us, not merely with water, but in our heart of hearts, Lord, at the internal level, cleansing us from the inside out. We thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.